Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. Since I've moved back, there's bigger parking lots in New Jersey than there was in LA. I mean LA the private parking's bigger, but I've noticed there's a there's a parking lot across the street. It's in, in a strip mall, let's say. It's huge. And it always irks me because I like to park far away and walk. So I like to park by myself, not that I have a nice car or anything, I just like to walk. But I've noticed this lately, whenever I do that, I park like in the far corner. There's no one around me. I get out, I walk to the supermarket, you know, I get my steps, I can feel healthy. I come back, there's always one car parked next to me. And I have no idea why that person parks there. It blows my mind. I sit there, I I get, it doesn't let me do my pull through anymore, but I'm thinking all these spots and this person gets mine. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a we have a very uh, a, a New York Times bestseller. Uh, uh, Benny also is a columnist. He just does a ton of stuff. My guest is W. Bruce Cameron. How you doing, W. Bruce? I'm doing great. So let me ask you: Is it always the same car? <laughs> no, could you imagine that? I'd be so pissed. It'd be like it's no. It's funny though because you sit there and you think, okay, I'm going to park here. There's no one around. Just because you, I like to pull out quick, you know. Whatever. But it seems there's always, you come out and there's one car that parks there and there's like 25 spots all around. And you're like, why did you pick this one next to me? And it gets irritating after a while. And you just, it'd be funny if it was the same car though. I go, okay, this is a little crazy. Now you live in LA now, right? I live in LA, Marina Del Rey area. Uh, Moved out there for two, in 2002, I moved out there to absolutely live there for no more than five years, and I've been there ever since. It's great. I mean, it is a beautiful area, and I left L.A. And I, it's because L.A. was changing a lot. But um, but now you're originally from Michigan, right? Originally, originally from Michigan, yeah. In fact, I was born about an hour from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, it was uh, true, though, that I, I didn't really grow up in Michigan. I spent most of my uh, life in Kansas City. But after college, I moved to Michigan, and I worked for uh, General Motors for many years, so I, I lived up here in Michigan. Now, when did you start finding a love for writing? Were you always a kid in school that wrote? I mean, I know I remember I had a great uh, English teacher who taught us, you know, we could write anything, and in six, in like, I mean, in 12th grade, I wrote a paper, How to Give a Wedgie, which dates myself because no one uses the term wedgie anymore. But did you always write, and as a kid, did you write, or when did you have this fascination to start writing? I can't remember a time when I... Uh, didn't want to be a writer. I can't remember. I, I know that, you know, as a little boy, all my friends wanted to be astronauts and baseball players. I, I just wanted to be a writer. That was it. Now, was there something uh, something that drove you to writing? I mean, was, was there a book that you read that you said, I want to do this? I mean, did you go to the library a lot as a kid? Or how did you just really find that love? Oh, you know, all those things make sense. I, I think that uh, that it's, it's, it's too ingrained for that. I just think... Um, I, I noticed very early on that I was always in trouble in school because I was never paying attention. And the reason I wasn't paying attention is because there were all these movies in my head. These stories were constantly playing out, and they were so much more interesting and diverting than what I would, you know, the math, you know, arithmetic. And then, um, then I discovered, I don't think around fourth grade, that I could write down these stories that were in my head, and then they, that kind of got them out of my head. And uh, so it just felt like a natural outlet for all these stories. And, you know, it's, I mean, I lived inside my brain my whole life. I still don't quite understand it. 
Now, now you're writing, and, you, and that's funny because we all do daydream. And I think anyone who's creative does daydream. And then you sit there and you look back at the teacher, and they call you, and you go, "Oh, damn!" But yeah. what? I, when did you start? Like in high school, did you did you write? Were you writing stories, or when did you start putting down all these thoughts you had to paper? Because I know a lot of times a creative mind will have thousands of ideas, and it's hard to actually sit down and write them. Did you have a teacher that said you, know, you got to write this, or were you noticed in school by that? Oh, you know, I sat down to write a novel in fourth grade. I mean, I was, I was serious about it. Right? It was longhand, and my, my hand wore out. I took typing class uh, my sophomore year of high school. That, oh no, sorry, it was it was uh, I took it was eighth grade. I took I took typing class in eighth grade, and after that, uh, I had a way to get my stories out fast enough that I just started writing them all down. Nobody encouraged me. In fact, I. <laughs> I mean, my parents were encouraging, but they were also pretty big readers, and my dad would read something, and he'd just sort of shake his head and say, well, this isn't very good. <laughs> so, so, I had a, so it was like the opposite of, of encouragement, which actually I believe made me into a better writer because I always felt like I had to have a higher standard or my dad wouldn't like it. Now, you were writing, and now when you went to college, where did you go to school, and what was your major, and what were you planning to do when you graduated high school? Um. I, when I went to college, I went to college in West, at Westminster College, which is in Fulton, Missouri. Um, it's famous for three things. It's famous because of his Iron Curtain speech there. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, mentioned the evil empire uh, speech there. And Bruce Cameron threw up on the lawn of the Sigma Chi house there. Those are the three <laughs> things for I, I totally wasted my education. I was an English major. I didn't need to be an English major. I already knew how to read. I already knew how to write. Uh, I should have taken business and computing and stuff that I actually got involved in professionally because the, the dark secret to my life is I was a writer, but I wasn't, I wasn't able to support myself writing. Most of my life, I've had to have a day job. Well, no, is that why when you graduated, you started working for General Motors? Yeah, General Motors uh, turned out uh, it's you know it's a small family-owned operation here in Michigan. Uh, I was in finance. I didn't study finance in college. I knew nothing about it. So I I was really uh, uh, but I had to make a living and I had to support a family ultimately and things like that. And I just kept writing. I kept writing books and I wrote um, nine unpublished novels before I finally sold my first one. Now, what were these books about? Where were you drawing from? Were you drawing, you know, from your your life or other lives, or your, or that you know the fantasy life that you had when you were younger, when you know thinking of different movies and stuff? What were some of your early novels about? Actually, making the mistake of chasing the market. Uh, when I thought that the uh, market wanted international thrillers, I wrote an international thriller. Although I'd only been to Canada, so <laughs> I wrote a, a story that was in Nicaragua, which in my telling looks a lot like Canada. And uh, it was terrible because uh, I was writing not what I knew about, but what I thought the market wanted me to write. And when I finally uh, finally gave up doing that and just let my voice go, uh, that was the first time I got an agent. That was the first time that I got attention was with a, a novel that I wrote that my agent wrote, this is pretty good. I could sell it if it, were, if it weren't so long. Uh, so I knew I was on to something when I just let myself go instead of trying to chase the market. So you're writing and you're working a day job. When do you get that first, when do you get your first sale? 
Well, it, it it's interesting. It it came together for me when uh, I talked to that agent about that book I had written, and the secret was when I wrote book number nine, I wrote it just for me. I didn't write it for the market. I wrote it for me. And so when she said I could sell this if it were half as long, I said, well, I can't cut it because I wrote it for me. I made a commitment that this book was going to be a book for me. Uh, but I discovered my voice was funny. And I, I, I knew that I was funny because I was an Internet columnist. I was This is before there was blogging. So basically I was just sending out an email newsletter that was my amusing observations of life or whatever. And when she said, well, what else do you have? Anything. And I said, well, I've got these columns I've been writing for the Internet. And we took them to the Rocky Mountain News. And the Rocky Mountain News uh, hired me as a humor columnist. And uh, so then I'm writing for Rocky Mountain News. It's not enough to live on, but it's it's first time I had a professional gig. And then one of my columns was Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. And when I wrote that, it got picked up by the wire services and was reprinted all over the English-speaking world. And uh, that's what changed my life. We were able to sell a book proposal to a New York publisher about Eight Simple for dating my teenage daughter, and that book proposal then uh, became the bestseller, New York Times bestselling Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, and a and a television show. Now, now, how did you come up with that idea? I mean, what was just what went through your mind? I mean, as a humorist, I'm sure when you were doing different columns every day, you probably had to change up your writing. I mean, it was weekly or whatever. But how did that certain idea? come to you about the teen teenage daughter and why do you think it resonated with people because i because i like a lot of fathers had had these two adorable little girls and then one day there was a transformation and without warning they came down the stairs uh as if they were going to go off to the strip club after school <laughs> what what has happened to my little girl and and uh, how do i stop it and that's that's the first part of it, which is the father always thinks that he can control and change these these teenage girls, which is a real folly. Uh, so um, I thought about how all of a sudden they were attracting the attentions, the unwanted attentions, as far as I was concerned, of these teenage boys. And the boys were just starting to show up at my doorway, unannounced and uninvited. Uh, so I thought I need to come up with some rules. They are tongue-in-cheek, of course. Rule number one is if you pull in my driveway and honk, you better be delivering a package because you sure as heck are not picking anything up. And that was my cut on it was I wanted these boys to treat me with respect, which they didn't do, and to look me in the eye, which they refused to do. It was sort of like my daughters were dating zombies. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they smelled like zombies, and so I'm like, well, I, I got to write about this. So, so you sit there, you write this, and then it, you says it hit the wires, and then it gets becomes a bestseller. What happens? How does your life change as a writer when all of a sudden, as you said, you had written nine, you know, novels? So it's not like you were some guy who just sat there, wrote a book, and got lucky. I mean, you put the work in. But what is it like when you sit there and all of a sudden it starts selling, it gets published, and it's something that was different from everything you wrote earlier. What goes through your mind when that happens? I mean, do you sit there and go, wow, you know, I'm going to be a humorist from now on? Or what went through your mind? And what is it like to sit there and see when you see your name and your book climbing up the bestseller list? Well, I, I'll tell you, when, you, when you've been determined to accomplish something your whole life and it starts to happen, uh, it doesn't feel like 
it's time to celebrate. It feels like, okay, you've got one leg up on one rung of the ladder, keep climbing. It's, it, does, it just doesn't feel like that, that part of it ever ends. And, uh, and you, you put your finger on something, which was I had written nine novels, and nobody was interested in my novels. They wanted me to write humor books. And uh, a humor book, I mean, that, that worked out great for me. I wrote a book called How to Remodel a Man, and I was on Oprah, and I was an international bestseller, and that was great. But uh, I, I thought that my, my storytelling skills were not being used because these were more, frankly, joke books. Um, so it, was a, it, was a trans, it, it transformed my life, for sure. I mean, I moved to Hollywood because I had a TV show going with John Ritter as the star, and I wanted to be in show business. Uh, but all that wasn't because I was attracted to the glitter. I was just attracted to the idea that I might have uh, a way to make a living as a writer. Now, what was that like when you went into the set? And, you know, I mean, I've had, you know, I'm friends with some Seinfeld writers and some other writers, and, you know, and every show is different. And some rooms have the writer room, and, you know, I know stand-ups who try to do the writing room, and they just hate it. What is it like for you when you went out to Hollywood and basically the show was based on your book? Did you have any input on the show, like as, to the showrunner, or how did that work for you? I had a lot of input with the pilot, uh, and then uh, they didn't really want me around <laughs> because I was the guy that wrote the book. Uh, so I didn't come aboard until the third season. I, I came aboard when they got a new showrunner. Um, I didn't like the writer room. I think that's a crazy way to write. Uh, I, you know, if I were running a room, I'd say, okay, everybody go off and, and you all know what the scene is. Everybody go write your own version and we'll come in and we'll, we'll look at it that way. That's not how they do it. They put it up on the board. They literally read the line and then you're supposed to pitch funnier ways to say it. Seems like a, a really odd process, but that's, uh, that's how they do, did it on, that show and a lot of shows do it that way. Uh, for me, I was not—I was willing to be a TV writer, but I was sort of relieved when it what didn't turn out that that was going to be my career because I much prefer books. So when you're writing this comedy and you're writing the uh, TV show, are you still trying to write novels on the side, or was your time just consumed because you were writing on a TV show? And I know writers are long days and with the taping and stuff like that. What was going on in your mind? I mean, were you afraid that you might get? Not pigeonhole, because it's great to be a TV writer and the money's great, but were you sitting there thinking, you know, I will do this for a TV writer, but it's not what you really like because it's a good living, or were you sitting there in the back of your mind saying, I really got to break away and, and get back to writing these novels because that's what I love? Gotta, I have to confess, I just lacked a perspective at that point, and I was just basically uh, going to wherever it seemed like the best chance of success lay for me. I was making the same mistake. I was chasing the market. In this case, the market for my services. Uh, I was, I was, I was lost. Uh, I, I got, uh, the ability to sell another pilot. So I wrote that. I, I, uh, did another one. I, I sold a screenplay. Things were going great. I was writing these spec screenplays. Uh, which didn't sell, but uh, so I was I was very busy, uh, but I was I I was really adrift. It wasn't there was no plan. There was no uh, there was nothing that sort of I could look to and say, well, this is the structure of my career. I, I sort of uh, it was it was very confusing. Now, what made that change? What happened that all of a sudden you said, you know, 
you went on your own path and you stopped writing for what the market wanted and you started writing for yourself again? Uh, honestly, it was a huge failure. It was a combination of failures. The first thing that happened was I wrote a book called Eight Simple Rules for Marrying My Daughter, which was a sequel, and we thought it would go gangbusters, and it, it fell completely flat. Because it turns out that uh, when a woman is engaged to be married, she doesn't have much of a sense of humor. Uh, the same thing goes for the mother of the bride. So the people who had bought the first book uh, were not interested in that book. So that failed. And my book agent told me, you know what, if you're going to sell anything, you're going to have to write the whole thing. No one's going to buy a book from you on a proposal anymore because of how badly this failed in the marketplace. And then the other thing that happened was uh, we went on writer's strike. And when uh, we came back from writer's strike, I had been what I guess you'd call hot in town. I was, had, I was able to give meetings. I was... When I came back, uh, no one remembered who I was. I didn't have a long track record, and uh, I basically was in a position where I had I had nothing going on anymore. And uh, so I was I was as low as I've ever gone. I mean, I I was making uh, less money than I had made as a teenager, and, and I was in L.A. where you know, you know, I mean, a cup of coffee will set you back up, you know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I know. That's one of the reasons why I moved. An apartment cost you unbelievable. Yeah, it was a real struggle for me, and I had, uh, but I was driving up the coast of California with a with a woman that I had been dating and uh, was getting kind of serious about in the dating department. But she had just lost her dog uh, before I met her, and she turned to me just out of the blue and said, "I will never have another dog. I can never go through that again." Um, which I thought was really bad news because, uh, I, like I said, I was getting serious about her, but I have to have dogs. Right. Well, <laughs> so this is like a deal breaker. And I'm thinking, so does that mean I'm not going to date this girl anymore? And uh, so I, when I, when I want to make a point, sometimes I tell a story. And I told her a story about this dog who reincarnates and remembers each life. And in the process... Uh, uh, comes to believe there must be some purpose to its life or it wouldn't keep happening. And when I told her this story, uh, it did make her feel better. She, she did decide that what her her dog would have wanted more than anything as it was passing was for her to get another dog. And uh, at the end of my telling of this story, which is, uh, you know, giving you a very brief sketch here, but it actually took me more than two hours of talking to go through the whole thing because I had characters and dialogue and and uh, plot and i just i moved through it she said you have to write that as a book that's got to be a book so, so i wrote it i called it a dog's purpose and uh, when i sent it to my agent in new york he said well there, I, I never say this to any of my clients but i can sell this i know i can sell this so and, when i'm sorry so when you wrote when you basically when you were telling a story this was just spontaneity coming from you as you were talking to her. This was nothing pre-planned. So you were just, this all came to you in a car ride. Yeah. This is what used to happen to me in math class, is I'd be completely diverted by some story that was unspooling in my head. This one, though, was so complex and full of detail and required no rewriting. I mean, as I'm talking to her, it's just coming into my head as if I've tapped into the cloud, you know? I mean, I was just downloading it. 
And uh, that's never happened to me before or since. So you sit there, you have this idea, You when you go back, when you start to write it, how do you remember everything you were saying? I mean, because it's not like you were taping it. Did you have her help? Did she spur you on to what you remember, what you forgot? Or did you just have that outline and maybe miss a few things and they came back to you? That's, that's such a great question because what happened to her is when I finished it, she said, do you have your tape recorder? And I said, yes. She says, you got to get that down before you forget any of it. So I proceeded to tell the whole thing over again. And at the end of it, she's crying again. And she said, no, I don't want to hear that story again until you've written it. Uh, so you are exactly right. I would have forgotten it. But she said, you have, to, you have to grab your recorder and record it all. So when you went back, how long did it actually take you to write it? And did you add stuff to it? Did you expand on the characters? Or was it pretty much, you know right off the bat, you knew that this is going to be the whole story. I, you know, I've got to tell you, Steve, this is so strange. It differs so little from the original taped story. Uh, I mean, obviously I had to flesh it out because even, a, even at two and a half hours of talking, that's not a full length book. Uh, that's a, that's about a 40,000 page book. And the book itself, I think is 75,000. So obviously I had to develop characters do a better job describing things. And uh, in the telling of the story, I did have a bloodhound because I didn't understand, I hadn't done any research into how search and rescue dogs work. And so I had a bloodhound as one of the lives of this reincarnated dog. Uh, when I when I re did some research, I realized I didn't need to include a bloodhound, that uh, I could do it all with a German Shepherd. So... Uh, but that's how that whole thing came down. It was it was it was a very unique writing situation. Nothing like that has ever happened to me before. Now, were the dogs some of them based on dogs you had, or how did you how did you choose the, the dog's personality? Because you know it must be you know you wrote for humor, you write this, and now you're writing you know about dogs. I mean, how did you sit there? Were they based on dogs that you had had? Uh, they were. Uh, you know, dogs are dogs are kind of dogs. I didn't. Uh, base them specifically on any dog from my past, but I've always grown up with dogs. And so when I start writing about dogs, though, I mean, I did something with a dog's purpose that I hadn't seen before. I wrote it from the dog's perspective, from the dog's point of view, but I wanted it to be a real dog. I didn't want it to be a dog that understood English or a dog who talks to other animals. I didn't want to have any of that be true. So instead, I focused on making a story from the point of view of a real dog, and uh, that meant I, you know, I did a lot of research into dog brains and, and things like that, but in the end, it turned out the best research was just going to the dog park. When I went to the dog park and watched dogs' behavior and saw how they interacted with each other, uh, I realized they have a, it's, it's a complex social structure that they are dealing with. So it's a lot tougher than middle school. And I thought, uh, this is not something that you read about in books. This is just what, the way it is. Now, so you sit there, you write it, your agent says he can sell this. What happens next? How does that unfold? Does he sell it right off the bat, or what's, what's the process? It took him two years to find a publisher. Everybody turned it down because there was this, this book that had sold at auction called uh, Art of Racing in the Rain. And it was, and everybody said, okay, well, there's already a dog, there's already a book told from the perspective of a dog, so that's it. You don't, we're, no one's going to buy this one. So it was, uh, it was a tough sell. 
uh, didn't go well at all at first. Uh, I'll never forget the day when he called me and said, well, I, it's a, it's kind of a small offer, but I do have an offer for uh, your uh, dog's purpose. And I said, that's, that is fantastic. So you get this offer, it gets, book comes to market. How long till it starts getting popular? And once again, you know, you had seen a humorous book shoot up the, of, of the you know, the New York Times bestseller. It must be a lot more different when it's something, as you said, it's something you really wanted to write and something that was very touching, especially the woman that you were driving with. How long did it start taking till the book caught on? I mean, was it right out of the gate, or what do you think made it catch fire? Here's what's really interesting. I got a phone call from the publisher uh, a couple of months before the book came out, and she said, hey, uh, have you thought about what you're going to write next? And I told her, well, as a matter of fact, I, I have. And I started to pitch her uh, a story. And I got about uh, 10, 15 sentences into it. And she said, great, I'll call your agent. And I called him and I said, what's going on? That's, that's never happened to me before. And he said, they must be getting some advance orders on a dog's purpose. And they're coming in uh, better than they expected. And they want to nail you down before you become hot. Uh, and so I said, well, let's just do what we can do. Uh, we did sell that one as well. That one was my second novel called Emery's Gift, and it did very well. Uh, not as well as A Dog's Purpose, though. You absolutely nailed it. What happened was the first week the book came out, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. Nobody saw that coming. I think it spent a total of, of 19 weeks in hardcover on the New York Times bestseller list. Ultimately, now we're up to more than 60 weeks total being been on the New York Times bestseller list with that book. So that's my monster book. That's my biggest bestseller. Well, what do you think makes it resonate with people so much? I mean, it's something that, you know, as I said, I mean, will cat lovers like it? I mean, I'm, that's joking. But what what do you think makes it resonate? Because so many people love dogs and they're, they they love their pets. Or, or or is it the stories or and the heart touching? I mean, what do you as the writer think that has made it so popular and and stay you know i mean you were on the best as hardback and you went to softback in the state what what do you think made it resonate with people i i honestly think it has to do first off with the fantasy that your dog can return to you but but more than that it's a it's about some things that we all want to be true that that real love never dies and that our true friends are always there for us if we just know where to look. And I think those themes are so touching and so appealing to people. Uh, and then it doesn't hurt that the central character, most joyful, optimistic, happy creature that there is, so that you've got a, a moving tale about some really happy stuff with a with a, a happy ending. I think that in, in, on balance, even if you like to read international thrillers about, you know, a town in Nicaragua that looks like Windsor, Canada, I think even if that's your, what you're really interested in, this book can, is a, is a nice change. Now it sits there. It's, it's on the bestseller and you said they were already ready for your second book as a writer. What, what goes through your mind? I've talked to guys on the show who are musicians who have had huge albums. And then, you know, their next album, they're like, we have the stuff, the material, but we don't know if it's going to do as well. When you went into the, you know, when you wrote Emery's, Emery's Gift, 
where did you find the idea and what was going through your mind? Did you feel a little bit of pressure? Because one, you had been through it when you went back to LA from being the hot guy after strike and you said, no one knew who you were. Did you sit there and think, you know, I don't want that to happen again? Or what went through your mind when you had to sit down and write that book, the second book? I had been so humbled by my fall from success. I had been, I had been so wiped out by that process that I no longer had uh, the sense that that I was in control of all this. It really, it really felt to me like uh, one of those higher power things. So, uh, and I also had the the luxury of having gotten a rather small advance for uh, Emery's gift and for a dog's purpose. So I didn't, I didn't feel any pressure. I thought I was just writing a book from my heart because they they were giving me much less money than I'd ever made for a book before. Uh, of course, and of course, the uh, a dog's purpose because it sold so many copy copies that eventually did very well for me. Uh, Emery's gift uh, also has earned out. So, I, but but back then, remembering the way I was then, I didn't have the pressure that I might I might confide that I have on me today. Now, Emery's gift. What was that about? Emery's gift is a is a very interesting story about a boy named Charlie whose mother has died and his father, Charlie's father, is so locked away in grief that Charlie is adrift, alone. He needs somebody. He's an eighth grade boy who is struggling in junior high schools. It's back in the seventies, and Charlie starts to believe that he has made actual friends and could communicate with a grizzly bear in the woods. So it is a story then about saving the bear from uh, being hunted. It's a story of this relationship with this bear. And then ultimately it's a story about Charlie's spiritual journey from being a little crazy with grief back to uh, being back with his father and back in the world. It's about, it's about emerging from the worst tragedy and finding the best part of life. And how this bear, whether or not any of this actually happens, I mean, part of it is that you start to wonder, is this happening or is Charlie crazy? Uh, this bear really makes it possible for Charlie to find his way. I have many people who say it's my best work. It certainly was uh, torn from my heart when I wrote it. Uh, I imagined these things. I've never had a bear as a friend, and my mom is still alive, but I uh, definitely was able to get into the mind of an eighth grade boy because I've been an eighth grade boy. I know how confusing that is. Now, how do people take to it? The people that were they expecting something like the dog or did they like that you had an animal in it? I mean, you know how people get, you know, they read something. They, I mean, you have your, your true core fans that will read anything you do, but there are a lot of people who read something, expect something. Was there some people that said, well, wait a second, there's not a dog, there's a bear. I mean, how did you, how do people react to it? Especially for you when you thought it was your, one of your best works. Did that irritate you if they didn't like it? Yeah, it turns out dogs as pets are much more popular than grizzly bears. <laughs> and so I, I wound up not selling that many copies. You're, you nailed it. It's, it. It really had a lot to do with people's reaction uh, to, as one publisher put it, one of our foreign publishers, it's not a happy dog book. Uh, they wanted happy dog books out of me. And I have written several happy dog books, but uh, where I wasn't, I'd had a best bestseller. I thought that meant that from now on I was a best-selling author, but I learned instead uh, 
uh, that, that that wasn't true. Now, what's the process when it goes from hardback to softback do, uh, to paperback? Do, does this happen to all books or does it happen to some? Or well, how does that happen? And then do they, do they renegotiate a deal with you when that happens? Like when you had, you know, Dog's Purpose was selling, you know, went from hardback to softback. Do they, like, like it's like a commercial where, you know, when the cycle stops, you get another bonus. How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's not like that. You, generally, you sell the rights to publish the book. They have a commitment to publishing it in hardcover. Uh, the publisher is very interested in the softcover. That's a more profitable segment for them. Uh, they don't give you a bonus. In fact, you make less as an author. You make less money per copy for softcover, although you do sell more copies. So, you know, just from the business side of it, there's not really a, uh, a point to be made in terms of, well, this is a bad deal one way or the other. You make even less money when you see those mass markets in the airport, the small version uh, soft covers. But again, you're in the airport; you're selling more copies. So it, it really doesn't uh, it, it really doesn't impact the author. There's no second deal made for paperback. And sometimes, as was the case with Eight Simple Rules for Marrying My Daughter, uh, they elected not to come out with a paperback. Now you sat there, and after this, you st you did a, a dog's journey. Now, was that something that the publisher wanted you to do, or did you just say, I want to do this, or was it another story you had? Or, and you had a few dog books. What made you go down the, the dog path again? Was it because you really enjoyed writing that, or that it's what your publisher wanted, or you said, I want to, you know, I want to keep you know, bringing out work? Yeah, A Dog's Journey is the sequel to A Dog's Purpose. It, it, it picks right up where the dog left off. Uh, I didn't write A Dog's Purpose uh, with the intent that it would lead to a sequel. But what happened was uh, I realized from listening to my fans that I had sort of left an open-ended question, which is, well, what happens to a reincarnating dog at the end of the book? Well, it's still alive. Uh, in theory, it goes on reincarnating. I was very intrigued by that, and I started to imagine what the dog's purpose would be in a second life, in another uh, life, and this one was a dog's journey. Uh, oddly, it is higher reader is higher reader rated than a dog's purpose. Fans actually like it better. In fact, it may be my highest rated book uh, by readers that I've ever written. It's it's very popular. Now, how do you how as a writer do you do you judge those readings when you see it the ratings? Do you sit there and say, okay, I can see that, or sometimes they get irritated? I mean, it's got to be you know because any book you write is your baby. So, I mean, I'm sure if there's bad, something, someone gives you a bad review, even if, you, even if you get all these stellar reviews and someone gives you a bad review, does it ever piss you off? Oh, I, I, you know, I don't think that fans realize if they rate a book one star that that can, that can pull down the average and that the writers do sell books based on their average rating on places like BookReads and Amazon. Uh, it, it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, a couple times. One time someone wrote, uh, this did not play in my MP3 player, uh, giving it one star. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Uh, someone else someone else wrote, you know, I bought this book used. It was supposed to be like new condition, but there's an ink stain on it. I'm like, okay, you bought it used, so I didn't make any money on it anyway, and you're giving me one star. I don't understand uh, what you're thinking, but... So uh, there were a few like that. But, you know, I like to read my, my bad ratings and sort of take them to heart. 
uh, sometimes I shrug and say, well, you're right. You know, uh, people who write, I did not want there to be a sequel to a dog's journey or a dog's purpose. I'm like, well, I get your point. Uh, if you didn't want it, then yes, you're going to be really unhappy that there is one. Uh, but there's nothing you can do about that. Now, A Dog's Purpose was made into a movie. How long till they started courting you to get the rights to that book? Is it something that Hollywood will sit there, and you've been through this again before with your other book, did they sit there and they, they sit there and they see it selling and they hit you up right away? What was How long did it take for that book to be optioned or whatever into the screenplay? Well, this is I'm going to go all the way back to driving up the coast with that woman, the, the woman who was sitting next to me uh, in the car, liked the story so much she married me. Okay. And, well, congratulations. Uh, thanks. And so I, uh, yeah, so I did a great job with that story. She, uh, she, I was fortunate. She was a screenwriter, and she had contacts all over town. And she said, uh, let's just go straight to Gavin Pallone with this. Gavin Pallone is a known animal act, uh, activist. He's a movie producer. He's done several movies, did Zombieland, one of my favorite movies. And um, she said, I think he would really like this. He did really like this. And so he uh, whisked us around town, took us into several meetings. Uh, when we met with DreamWorks, uh, that's what it, they went, they called themselves DreamWorks then, now it's Amblin. When we, we met with DreamWorks, we walked out and his phone buzzed and he held it up and read the message. He says, they want it. Uh, so we really sold it in three days of meetings. We sold it on day two, uh, and that was that. We sold it. Uh, Amblin, sorry, DreamWorks wanted the wanted the uh, screenplay so quickly that though we were technically on our honeymoon, my wife and I sat down and wrote the screenplay together, and sent them the screen the screenplay. Uh, and then all went dark. <laughs> we, the book came out in July of 2010. We turned in the screenplay, uh, I believe, in uh, uh, January of 2011. And the movie came out in January 2017. So that's what that's how that goes. Now, the, wait, the, the book was done or did you sell it off the pitch of your story when they bought the screenplay? Now, that's a great question because a lot of people don't realize that you could do that. But no, what happened instead was the book had actually been out and been a bestseller uh, when we finally uh, sold it to uh, DreamWorks. Now, what was it like for you, one, to work with your wife to write this? And what was it like for you to change your book to a screenplay? Did it help that you had had TV writing, even though they're two completely different animals? You know, the screenplay is, you know, different spacing and all that. What was it like when you were trying to I guess you probably have to condense it a little bit. What would what what is that process like? Yeah, it it really is basically like sitting down with your family and deciding which one of your children you're going to keep because <laughs> it, it you're just going through uh, a book that means a, a lot to you and throwing away huge chunks of it. Uh, you can't possibly right, because a screenplay if you converted it like. Scene by scene, I think we calculated one time it would be a nine-hour movie. Uh, so you're throwing away so much stuff. Uh, that process is a little painful. But it's also a challenge, and I, I like this writing. I like writing. I like doing all kinds of writing. I, I write everything. I write poetry. I've written greeting cards. I can do all that, and I love it. And so really, for me, 
uh, it was intriguing to try to find the heart of the story in this in this novel that I had written, and um, and then uh, and then having my wife, Eric, uh, I mean, she's just such a she's so great at uh, some of the things that I'm not particularly good at when it comes to screenwriting. We're very we really help each other. We're very complimentary uh, to each other's skills. Um, and then you know if we get if we if we ever get to a place where we can't figure out uh, what it is we want to do, we can go out to dinner. I mean, it's like we can because we're we're uh, compatible that way as well. So you write it and you said it goes basically the screenplay goes dark until the movie comes out. When they're starting to do production, do they call you back in, or you are you kept on as a writer, or do they bring someone new? And were you? involved with the development of what would be the final product yeah it, it goes differently at every studio and every movie so there's no there's no template uh the way a dog's purpose happened was that they had brought in several different writers uh they eventually fired the executive who was trying to develop the movie the new president of development uh i can't think of his title so i don't want to mangle it but the new the new guy in charge uh, listened to Gavin Pallone because Gavin kept saying, this is a really good movie. It's gotten really off track. We've had too many writers on it. We need to make it back uh, closer to what was in the book. So they hired yet another team of writers who came in and really helped uh, bring the book or bring the movie back to closer to what the book had envisioned when it was written. And that's ultimately the version that showed up on the screen. Now, when you went, you know, I'm sure you went to see it. What was your What was your thought? I mean, when you sit there and you know, it's everything. Anyone who's written, they always you always think of that, you know, that dream to see your name. I know you've seen it on TV, but at a, on the screen, you know, where it's like story by or screenplay by. What is it, what went through your mind then? Because you said you know you've been up and down, and you've always felt like you had to reach for that next wrong. Did you just sit there and look back and just say, this is pretty damn cool? <laughs> I've often said if I could just go back in time and find myself as a teenager and sit down and say, you know, here's what's going to happen one day. One day you're going to be sitting there and you're going to see your name on the screen because a, a movie that you have written based on a book that you have written will be up on the screen and you'll see one of your favorite actors. I, I would have just gone bonkers. Uh, the the overall the the process of doing all this though uh, it did humble me and it made me less uh, I'm 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 not as thrilled as you would expect because for me it was just you know it's just a long journey it continues to be a difficult job uh, I am proud of the work that I do uh, I saw the movie with Josh Gad I, we saw we went to a special screening and Josh Gad who voices the the dog in A Dog's Purpose, uh, is a very emotive guy. What a wonderful person, but he's so emotive. So he's laughing at all the funny parts, and he's sobbing at anything that's touching, and he's, he's he was just, you know, he, he groans when things happen that are tense. It was so much fun to watch a movie with this guy. And uh, and the fact that it was it was our movie, it was a movie that we had both worked on, was was doubly fun for me. Now, as I look through your, your, your book list, you know, you have a lot of dogs book, but what's what's the, the midnight plan of a repo man? Yeah, so it turns out that uh, when I was uh, when I was a young man trying to make a living, one of the jobs I had was repo man. 
and uh, I used to repossess cars. I used to steal cars for a living. And it also it occurred to me while I was doing that that um, I was a little bit like a private detective because I was trying to track down people who did not want to be found, uh, and or at least find their cars anyway. So uh, always start. I was always thinking, wouldn't it be interesting to have a a detective, a private detective kind of person, except for he's a repo man and he's got to solve a murder. And so the midnight plan of the repo man is exactly that. It's a repo, it's a repo man who has to solve the murder. The murder victim, though, is a voice in his head. He wakes up one day, he's got a voice in his head. The voice says, I'm not just a voice, I'm a person. I'm a person who used to be alive, but I've been murdered, and you need to find the people who killed me. And that's the premise of the Midnight Planet of the Repo Man. It's quirky and funny. It it does have a dog in it. There's a dog on the cover, <laughs> but uh, not told from the perspective of the dog. The dog is just an important character. Now, how did how did your fans respond to that? Just because, once again, it's probably something different. It's you said it's quirky. It's you know it, and even though there's a dog in it, it's not dog driven. How did the fans react to that? I think people, it's almost been universal how my fans have uh, embraced the Midnight Planet of the Repo Man and its sequel, Repo Madness. They just love it because it's funny and fun. Uh, It's a different kind of story. So you've you've put your finger on it. There's a lot of people who are saying, yeah, it's not a happy puppy book, so I'm not going to read it. I only, you know, I want Bruce to write one kind of book, and when he writes it, I'll read it. Otherwise, I won't. That's fine. Uh, I mean, everybody's got their tastes, but I am really, uh, I'm really, I'm really pleased with how they turned out. And certainly, uh, you know, my publisher is. Everybody's happy with how it turned out, and and uh, maybe I'll write more of them if I get a chance. Now, it seems like we had talked before you came in here that a lot of books. You have a lot of books coming out a lot of the time. The latest one is Molly's story. Now that that's that's toward, geared more towards children or like seventh and eighth graders, I believe, right? Yes, I have a younger reader series. It's always hard for me to define, though. I mean, when people say, well, what grade could read this? I, it really does depend on the individual because there are, are students who, for whom this would be, even in sixth grade, would be too easy. And there are adults who read my, my younger reader books and, and really enjoy them because there's no, there's no real danger to the dogs too much. There's, it's, it's all really just taking a dog's purpose and a dog's journey, taking the dogs from those books and writing children's books about them. So the one that just came out, Molly's story, that's the story of Molly, who is one of the dogs in A Dog's Journey. It's it's a way for a younger reader to sort of get into a book about a dog, and, and in this case, the book is about the relationship between the dog and uh, the, her her person, CJ, to find their way into that. But that's not necessarily something that an adult would be interested in because if they've read A Dog's Journey, they've already read about Molly. Now, what made you decide to do the, uh, the younger age books? And is it, a harder, is it harder for you to write just because it's something that if it is younger, you know, I'm sure as we get older, you know, we, we think we know it's acceptable to say, but I do it, you know, like, girlfriends, nieces, and nephews are older now, but before you have to watch yourself, you're like, can I say that? Or like, I like, don't listen to my show because I curse. But like, how do you sit there? First of all, what made you decide to write for that market? Was it just something that was someone suggested it to you? Or was it something that you said, you know what, I want to, I want to 
fill myself out as a writer? It was a suggestion for my publisher. What they were running into when they would, uh, they would, my, you know, a dog's purpose, a dog's journey, and Emery's gift are taught in the classroom all over the place, and uh, we have teachers' guides, and it has gone very well. But uh, there are some students that were finding it uh, a little challenging. And the question was, you know, so we've got, let's say, a fourth grade reader or a third grade reader. Uh, do we have a way to get these wonderful dog stories, which are very popular for children at that age, into their hands? And the, it was my publisher who said, we think, we think the way to go is to write a, a younger reader book. And don't worry, Bruce, you just write what you want to write, and we will edit you down to the point where the vocabulary is fine. We'll look at the outline, and we'll make sure that there's nothing threatening in there. And it was funny for me, because uh, in A Dog's Journey, you meet the character of Gloria, who is CJ's mother, and CJ is the is the girl, uh, as the dog thinks of her, who is the, the person that uh, the dog keeps coming back to. And uh, Gloria is not the greatest mother. <laughs> She's not the, that's just sort of putting it mildly. And I was pretty concerned about, uh, you know, having a Cruella DeVille character as a mother, but it, it, it turns out I was, I was assured, oh no, wicked mothers are fine. <laughs> Gets, <laughs> The, the dog dying that might be a problem but but yeah a, a mean mom sure you know go for it now as a writer you you're you know when when your first book would became when it became the bestseller it was what you said 2010 and yes. from now to now how have you noticed how because social media has blown up so much even in just those seven years how has that been a an advantage for you or has it been negative? I mean, what is your, rea what is your response on social media? How do you, do you get a lot more, uh, a lot more people reaching out to contact you? Yeah. Uh, social media has been very interesting for, for me. The, uh, it, it, mostly it's been very positive, uh, because it has given me the ability to reach large numbers of people and get them invested in uh, my books. When I announce a new book, uh, I do it on my uh, fan page. We've got a Dog's Purpose fan page that's got, uh, I think, uh, 360,000 uh, fans on it right now. And uh, I, I, you know, I announce it all over social media. The downside has been that uh, as my presence has grown, I'm finding it harder and harder to maintain the personal connection that in the beginning really defined how, uh, and I was just using Facebook, how, how I used Facebook to reach my readers and talk to them. Uh, and initially, it was very intimate. And I, I had a, probably a few thousand people who uh, were like absolutely considered themselves to be my friends. And they would take pictures of my books in the stores and they would, they would you know, just be constantly referring other people to a dog's purpose and Emery's gift. But now, uh, now I've got 4,000 Facebook friends or actually, actually almost 5,000. You're not allowed personally to have more than that. And I've got what we call the secret group, which is a, a secret fan page. I don't know why they call it a secret, but it's, uh, it, it does, you can't search for it on Facebook. You have to be invited. And we've got a few thousand people in that. And then we've got 360,000 people on the fan page it has become much more difficult to try to maintain a personal connection with that many people. 
So I don't know going forward how much of an impact it has uh, other than just getting people to know that I've got these books out there and that they should take a look at them. Now, what are you working on now? Uh, I, so I have just recently signed a six-book contract, and so I'm working on those. <laughs> I've got a, uh, I've got a, uh, and they're they're pretty much all dog books. I'm I'm thinking about it. Uh, yes, they are all books about dogs. So I've got uh, six more books coming out: three three younger readers and three adult novels that are told from the point of view of a dog. Uh, the the <laughs> so I'm not chasing the market but the the market has started pounding on my door and uh it really was a question when you're when you get to be where i am now you turn in a a proposal for a number of books you don't have to go into great detail but the publisher now is uh writing me a bigger paycheck and therefore wants to have more control over what uh what i'm going to be writing and so there's a huge degree to which I have to invite them into my brain and let them kick around and see what they like and don't like. Well, I got to ask you this though: you're doing all writing these books, but as I looked, you know, as I did my research, I saw you wrote, you made a visit back to Hollywood in 2014, and you wrote a movie called Muffin Top, and you actually had a part in it. How did that come about? Well, <laughs> yeah, I had a part in it. I got cut. <laughs> movie. Uh, which I co-wrote with my wife, and she directed. So even though I was sleeping with the director, I still got cut from the part. I didn't think that was supposed to happen. Uh, Muffin Top is a movie. My my wife loves to make independent movies. She's got another one coming out in the in the fall. Uh, she uh, I I found that I could be a, a fairly good movie producer because it's mostly about numbers, and I was in finance, and I so I've got the experience. When it comes to my acting, uh, I think my acting is, uh, frankly, I think it makes people very tense to see me up on screen. I'll just leave it at that. But she cut me, and uh, even and but she didn't cut my dog. So my dog is in the movie, and so she's basically telling me that I am a worse actor than a four-year-old dog. <laughs> I think, though, I will point out, uh, my dog played a dog. Right. Which... Now, how hard is that for a dog? And I, I played man in bar. And I have to tell you, Steve, I was born to that role. I, I have practiced years for that role, and I still got cut. That's amazing. Now, one other thing is, has Hollywood been chasing your other books? Does that, does that happen now when you write a book? Do they sit there and say, we want to make it a screenplay? Like, have any of your other books been sold, or have they been developed into movies it, with only uh with only a couple of exceptions i've sold everything that i have ever written has been sold into development it didn't all get made but everything i've ever written has been sold uh so i'm still working on those and they are as we know from experience with a dog's purpose it's a long process so i have high hopes for several of those projects i feel like there's several on the shelf that deserve to be made into movies that that guy who sat there in third grade and and couldn't concentrate on what the teacher was saying in math class because he was watching movies in his head in his head that that guy is me and those books that i write today start out as movies in my head i'm a very visual uh writer novelist and my novels uh show it 
yeah, I think so. I think you can really get a sense of what a visual writer I am, and that means that they all can be translated in the movies pretty easily. So for me, when I write something and it doesn't get on the screen, I'm sort of disappointed because I would have liked to have seen it. Of all your books right now, which would you like to see be a made movie the most that you would love to see on the screen? That's a tough one. I have to say probably A Dog's Way Home, which came out in May and was a New York Times bestseller. A Dog's Way Home is a story of a very dedicated dog named Bella, who is part pit bull. And Bella is banned from Denver, where pit bulls are by statute uh, not allowed to be alive, because they literally will pick them up and euthanize them. So to save Bella's life, Bella's owner sends her hundreds of miles away to a foster family while he finds a new apartment, but she doesn't know any of that. She just knows that some horrible mistake has been made, that she no longer is with her person, and she decides to rectify things by finding her way back home through hundreds of miles of harsh Colorado wilderness. It's a it's an adventure story. It's uh, very cinematic because it's in the mountains. Uh, there's a lot to this. It's a heavily plotted, intense book. But that's also ultimately the story of a dog's dedication and a willingness to go through anything to get back to her person. I love A Dog's Way Home, and I think it would make a great movie. That's awesome. I want to thank you for coming on. This was great. And uh, I, you know, your PR guy had hit me up. I had interviewed a few of his clients before, and I haven't talked to him forever. And I've been trying to get more authors, because lately I've been on the run of getting a lot of heavy metal musicians. And I used to get a lot of character actors. I jump around. But um, I'm glad I got to have you on. And now your website is uh, brucecameron.com. Yes. Okay, and now Twitter, what, what's your Twitter? Oh, heck if I know. I don't do Twitter. You know, I do Facebook. I'm real easy to find on Facebook. A Dog's Purpose uh, on Facebook is a huge, huge community. Lots of stuff going on. People talking about their dogs, posting pictures and all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. So people go out, buy his books. Don't buy him used. He doesn't make any money off that. You go and you buy it and it's good. And follow him on Facebook. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet all the time. Also, you go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 620 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I have lots of great guests coming up. More writers, actually. I'm booking more writers. I have Matthew Quick coming up and uh, the gentleman who wrote I'm Dying Up Here. And also, uh, follow me on Instagram, coopertalk1. I post a lot of pictures that come from my cookbook. Remember, when I had my heart problem a few years ago, I wrote a cookbook. Go to my website, stopthesalt.com. You can buy that book. You can get it at amazon.com. But if you buy it from stopthesalt.com, one, I'll autograph it for you, and two, I'll make more money. So people, follow follow W. Bruce Cameron, read his books, buy his books. Follow me, go to at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.